Watcher's Diaries, a weekly podcast all about Buffy. I'm Mary. And I'm Dylan. And this week we're talking about season one, episode one, Welcome to the Hellmouth. Finally. Finally. It's been one week. Finally. Did I stutter? (laughs) Okay. Before we get into the episode, I have an update. (gasps) On what? On the Yabo situation. I did go talk to Panda about this and she doesn't remember it being a thing, but she started Googling as well. And we found two other instances of the word being used. What Googling did she use that was different than what we used? I have no idea, but it was magical, so I'm very excited. So the first one she found was in the sitcom Growing Pains, which aired from 1985 to 1992. So this predates both Buffy and Hocus Pocus. And the episode in question was in the first season. It's Mike's Madonna Story. So it aired in 1985. The other one is in the movie Animal House, Hmm. which was 1978. Both of those times, the full phrase used is they refer to the girl as having major league yabos. Gross. So apparently we just weren't looking far back enough. This phrase must have originated sometime in the 70s. There's something so wrong about anyone who is not Danny saying yabos. What about when Max says yabos? It's still gross. Okay, so it turns out we weren't looking far back enough. The word actually probably came about sometime in the 60s and 70s, at least in that context. But if anyone knows like the actual first, because now I'm like, well, is Animal House the actual first instance? Does it go back even farther? When did this start? Because it clearly started (laughs) farther than you and I ever thought it did. So the mystery continues, but I did have an update. Yay! And that's the Yabo situation corner. I feel this is a corner we're going to come back to a lot, and I'm really sorry about that, people. I mean, there are worse corners we could go back to. We could go back to the Haunted Doll corner. We're not going to do that. Or the Honey Badger corner. But Honey Badger don't care. But Honey Badger do care, and Honey Badger going to kill you. Anyway, let's talk about Welcome to the Hellmouth. So as we've said several times, this premiered March 10th, 1997, and I did check that was a Monday. So we're not yet at another Tuesday night in Sunnydale. And I have a brief synopsis, which I took from tvguide.com. I figured from this series, I'm going to try to take all our synopses from TV Guide in the hopes that these descriptions are actually pretty close to what was published in TV Guide at the time of their original airing. I'm disappointed that the plural of synopsis isn't synopsises. I think the reason the plural of synopsis isn't synopsises is that you just said synopsises. Mm, no, in my head it's synopsises. Continue. Okay. Student Buffy Summers comes to Sunnydale, California, where she must stop a team of bloodsuckers from turning her new town into a buffet. Much better than the back cover synopsis for the movie. Two for you, TV Guide. Oh, not four? Nope, just two. They get two. It's very short. Oh, okay. I was gonna say, they have not reached Glen Coco status? No. So while this was the pilot that aired on TV, um, I'm sure several people know there is another version of this episode that was shot. With, with, with the fake Willow. Yes. Well, she's not a fake Willow. She's a different Willow. No, she's a fake Willow. Okay. Willow in that unaired pilot was played by Riff Regan, who some people may know of Sisters fame. And Principal Flutie was actually played by Stephen Toblowski, who went on to be on such things as Glee and the reboot of One Day at a Time. So do we know why they were replaced? Like, was that ever talked about? I'm sure it's talked about somewhere. Um, 
nothing <gasps> I was skimming through. I know. I don't Your know. Your encyclopedic knowledge has failed finally. My encyclopedic knowledge has failed finally. I will be better about Googling in the future. Uh, none of the materials I had handy said why the changes were made. Um, most don't really talk about the unaired pilot. They just kind of talk about the one that was shown on TV. And according to Slayer stats, together with The Harvest, Welcome to the Hellmouth was the highest rated episode of season one. Because originally these aired as a two-parter. So the premiere was a two-hour long event. Oh, okay. Even though they're not called part one and part two. They're part one and part two. And so they brought in 4.8 million viewers. Not bad. We also know that when they were first shopping this show, the WB simply wanted to market it as Slayer, thinking the whole thing sounded a little silly. But certain parties fought to keep the entire title, citing that anyone who isn't open to a show with this title isn't invited to the party. Calling it Slayer definitely defeats the purpose. Yes. Like the whole idea is it's Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That marketing executive went on to work for Disney when it came to make Frozen entangled. Why have titles that are more than one word when you could just have a word? I think if they did a reboot now, it should be called Slayer, but that's because I think it should be an anthology about the historical Slayers. I could get behind that. Right? You could have so much fun with historical settings and bringing in historical people. We know from the Tales of the Slayers that there was a Romani Slayer who went up against Elizabeth Bathory. We know Dracula's appeared. We know there was a Slayer connected to Roanoke. And these just, these I think these would be cool things to see um that just goes to show that i am a fucking american because i don't know why i kept thinking oh slayers are going to be like what parts of america are they gonna pop up in it's like why wouldn't they be in other countries you do remember the watchers council is british right i am aware bitch okay look it's britain watching over its problematic child you also know that spike killed a slayer in china shut up okay just saying. my brain doesn't work that way what is it eddie Izzer says do you know there are other other countries uh sometimes no that's a lie i always know there are other countries because i want to be in them so we begin with an intro and has anyone ever noticed that a lot of the wb shows well i guess now they're the cw shows have these intros like buffy <laughs> had one where they tell us what the slayer is hercules and xena both had them i think all the dc tv ones have them i know arrow and flash do i can't remember if supergirl does i don't think supernatural had one i can't remember if the vampire diaries did because i'm kind of beginning to think it's a prerequisite of being on that station that you have to have like one of those intros well it certainly adds to the drama there is a second version of the intro and it was put on at the original time of airing on the wb and it was this small separate teaser that included some of the past slayers they talked about two or three instances before buffy in other towns when people were dying, I know one of the Slayers they mention is Lucy Hanover. And then they do the whole like, now in 1997, it's happening again. Unfortunately, this teaser never made it onto the DVDs. Oh. Nor did it make it into syndication. Lame. Yeah, it was only when it aired originally on the WB. I did check, however, and it is out there on YouTube. I would link it in the show notes, but um, I know how WB and Fox are, and I don't want this to get taken down. But if you do a bit of word searching on YouTube, you can find it. I did watch it yesterday. It's great. There was a 
bit of nostalgia because it is, it's taken straight from the TV recording. So it starts with like the shot of the WB backlot and the whole like tonight's two hour premiere. And I was like back in 1997 all over again. It's fantastic. I would just like to point out that she watched it yesterday and did not share with the class, the class being myself. And that is rude. Uh, If you look in our general chat discord group, you'll find the link because I put it there. That wasn't directly with me. So rude. You did not share it with the class. I shared it with the class. You just weren't paying attention to class. Nope. Didn't share it with the class. Okay. You were off playing hooky. Okay. So from the intro, we begin or we move into an establishing shot of Sunnydale High after dark. And in a show like this, that lets us know that whatever is about to happen probably shouldn't be happening and most likely won't be good. And it's super spooky. The school used for the exterior of Sunnydale High is Torrance High, the same school used for Beverly Hills 90210. And as you know from last week's episode, Luke Perry, who played Dylan McKay in 90210, played Pike in the original Buffy movie. The camera slowly pans through darkened halls and empty classrooms, leaving the viewer to wonder just what all this is building to when a window breaks and two teenagers sneak inside. And I do have bits in here from the DVD commentary, and I want to give a shout out to Storm Reet on LiveJournal, who transcribed the DVD commentary, making it super easy for me to just cut and paste it into here, the bits I needed. Wait, did they do the entirety of the show's DVD commentary? Yes, but not every episode has commentary. Oh, okay. I was confused about this when I was looking through their live journal because I was like, oh no, there's not commentary for this episode. And then I went and looked up what episodes had commentary and realized they had transcribed every one that does. I mean, that is still impressive. Shout out to Storm Reed because fuck transcribing shit is hard. Yes. And I've, so I was, I'm very excited that it's there and I can grab bits of knowledge from the commentary. And one of the things mentioned in the commentary, since we're talking about hallways, is that you will see this hallway over and over, especially through season one. It's because they just had the one hallway. (laughs) Their budget was still rather small. They didn't have a whole lot of hallway. So if you think that you keep seeing the same hallway over and over again, yes, you are seeing the same hallway over and over again. How much is this school charging for the use of its hallway? I know the courtyard is, and I know some things are like that walkway you see sometimes in season two that's like the upstairs walkway that's like inside but not. Um, but I don't know if the hallway hallways are still torrents or if this is a set and they just didn't really have the funds to build like a big school set yet. So they basically built like two classrooms and a hallway and just kind of use those. So they sneak through the hall, the boy wanting to take the pretty blonde up to the roof, but she's hesitant, afraid they'll get into trouble. As they go along, she starts swearing she heard something. He assures her it's fine. There's no one there. Once this is confirmed, she drops the scarce scroll girl act and plunges her fangs into his neck. Dun, dun, dun. I loved this part. I love this part so much. And that blonde is, of course, Julie Benz, a.k.a. Darla. And I'm going to warn y'all now, I have a lot of thoughts on Darla, as well as several other characters. But Darla is definitely up there in my top three, probably because for the longest time, 
I dress just like her. I could see this. Private Catholic girls school for the win. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I had the plaid skirt. I would I would wear this out. Jackie would draw the mark of Igon on my arm. We were dorks. This is my shocked face. I am so surprised by this news. I also like that here they kind of set Darla up as a parallel to Buffy. No yes. one looks at Buffy and expects her to be this mythical killer of monsters. Just as no one looks at Darla and expects her to be the monster. They both do this thing where they subvert the societal expectations put onto them by their physical appearance, and I love it. I love that we have two blonde girls, both who look a certain way, and neither of which are anything like what you would think they are based on their appearance. So according to the Buffy the Vampire Slayer Encyclopedia, the boy with Darla is named Chris Beale, or Chris Boyle. We never hear his name. It's never said, but I guess it's in the script somewhere. Uh, He says he used to go to Sunnydale High, but I feel like he's recently moved to California from New York or New... I'm not really sure what accent he was attempting to lay on, but it was really thick and it like he was not from California. Look, it was his big break, all right? He was going to become a star. This was going to be his star vehicle. I don't think it worked for him. No, it did not. I mean, I could go look up who played Chris. I may like come to eat my words. He may be like a super big actor now, but I didn't look at him and go like, ah, yes, this is the dude from these eight other things. Well, now I'm going to look him up because I'm curious. All right. While you do that, Darla will drain Chris of his blood and we'll go right into the opening credits. Is there anyone on this planet who's seen the show that does not get completely fired up by this theme song? I love this theme song. It's so good. You just hear it and you know the bad guys are going down. The same thing with Xena. And I know this is twice now I've mentioned Xena, but the 90s were just a really solid time for women on TV. Yes. Yes, it was. You had Xena in 95. You had Buffy two years later in 97. I don't remember what your charm started, but you had charm going concurrently with Buffy. Charm started definitely sometime around when Buffy did, because I was watching it at the same time. Just going back to our friend Chris, he is played by a gentleman named Carmine Giovinazzo from Staten Island. So that was that accent was his actual accent. Oh, so he really was from New York. He really was from New York. And he's been in one episode of a bunch of things, including Birds of Prey and more recently Batwoman. Wait, he was in Birds of like the old Birds of Prey? Yes, he was Dr. Melvin. Okay, I think I do remember who he was. How quickly he went from a high school boy to a doctor because Birds of Prey was 2002 and he was a doctor. So bravo, Carmine Giovinazzo. Back to our actual podcast. So yeah, opening credits, 90s, great time for women. Um, We even had VIP in there and VIP, though, a little bit more comedic than either of these was about women kicking ass. It was an all-female bodyguard agency. So the band performing the opening is Nerf Herder, who the creative team discovered thanks to Allison Hannigan. Aww. She introduced them to the band. And I love the description of the opening credits. And it just makes me love them even more because in the commentary, we talk about how the credits starts out with this scary organ, and then it devolves instantly into rock and roll, which is just kind of telling people what the show is. You have this girl, she's got no patience for horror movies, she's not going to be the victim. And she's not going to go along with the whole scary organ movie classical tropes. She's got her own youth, her own attitude, and she's bringing them to the party. And I love that 
right there in the opening credit. We tell you everything you kind of need to know. And we'll talk more about the opening credits as we go through the season, noting when new characters appear, things change. Uh, like right now, it's interesting to note that the Buffy font is different from the one we've all come to know as the Buffy font. Oh shit, I did not even notice that. Yeah, the one everyone associates with the show actually will not appear in the title sequence until season three. Oh, sneaky, sneaky. And what I will link in the show notes is there is a great article in Slayage, which is an academic journal dedicated to Buffy and other Whedon properties about the credits and the role they serve uh, as character studies, as a sort of intro to the mythology. It's a really Hmm. good read. So I'll make sure to link that in the show notes for anyone who wants to read it. I will probably do this a lot as the show goes on because Slayage just has a lot of great episodes. I will be pulling stuff from them. Of course, anytime I do, I will link the article I use. Because we are good like that. We always cite our sources. We do. While my English teachers are probably very disappointed with how much I say like in this podcast, they would be very, very proud of my bibliography skills. We come out of the credits and we find ourselves in Buffy's room. She's in bed tossing and turning and she dreams of things to come. And I'm not kidding. These are things to come. We get images from a few first season episodes in that montage, including The Harvest, I Robot You Jane, The Puppet Show, and Prophecy Girl. A fun fact to note is that both Selma Blair and Katie Holmes were among the actresses considered for Buffy. I love that Sarah Michelle Gellar and Selma Blair will end up being like the best of friends. I know we talked about it last week, but that just amuses me that she was up for the role and then they would go on to work together. I feel at this time, especially with the WB and the WB properties, there was a lot of crossover. Like everyone tried out for the same roles and everyone ended up on some WB show. Katie Holmes went on to be on Dawson's Creek, which also ran concurrently to Buffy. Was Selma Blair on any WB shows? I don't know. Do you still have IMDb up? I do not. But while you carry on and I interject, I will take a look at her IMDb. Uh, Buffy's dream ends with a vision of the master. Buffy awakes, notices it's morning, and from below we hear her mom, yay Joyce! The real Joyce! Tell her that she doesn't want her to be late for her first day of school. And with Buffy's less than enthusiastic response, we're back at Sunnydale High. This time, in the daylight. How 90s is this scene. <laughs> we have upbeat rock music, plaid mini skirts, floppy haired boys horsing around, a girl on rollerblades. I feel like we could take this establishing shot and bury it in a time capsule. Also, I was wrong. There are two girls on rollerblades. Two whole rollerblading girls. Was Xena on the CW? Yeah. She was in an episode of Xena and Sarah Michelle Geller, when she was in Scream 2, what was her character's name? Cece. Selma Blair played her friend on the phone. Just the voice. I love it. I love the way the whole intro to Sunnydale High is phrased. Um, I'm going to go straight to the script and give it to you word for word. A day as bright and colorful as the night was black and eerie. Students pour in before the first bell, talking, laughing. They could be from anywhere in America, but for the extremity of their dress and the esoteric mania of their slang. This is definitely SoCal. Joyce drops Buffy off, telling her that she knows she's going to have a great day and make lots of friends. Typical mom stuff. But as Buffy gets out of the car and starts to walk away, she does take a moment to tell her, try not to get kicked out. Buffy's smile in return may make this seem like a typical parent joke, but we know better. We know this is a reference to what happened at Henry. Speaking of which, we do see a major change here from the movie, and I do think we forgot to mention that last week. While in the movie, Buffy was a senior, uh, the retconned show continuity will have put those events in her freshman year. Oh no, we did mention that. 
Okay, we did. Oh, good. Yes. So yeah, Buffy is now a sophomore. And that means she went through all of that when she was 15. Oh. She heads up the steps into the school and who should appear but Xander on a skateboard. Do we ever see that skateboard again? No. No, I don't think we do. But that's probably for the best because he completely wipes out. I mean, to be fair, he's mesmerized by Buffy. Not that I blame him. She is super cute in this entrance. And I really want the lipstick she's wearing. Apparently, there is a reason we will never see Xander on a skateboard again. And this reason is simply filming someone on a skateboard is a bitch. (laughs) There's a part in the commentary where they talk about lighting and tracking shots and occasional stunt doubles. And that was just a lot for a skateboard. So it doesn't happen. We also meet Will who is Yay. highly amused by Xander's wipeout and not at all concerned. Is this a common occurrence, his running into metal banisters? Because I'd like to think <laughs> if it were me, I would have been a lot more concerned. What if he broke something or Look, hit his head too hard? It's not like he fell and like slammed his head on the ground. Like it, There are so many worse things that could happen when falling off of a skateboard. It was just a, a light bump. I know. I just still think I would have been the person going like, oh my God, Xander, are you okay? And Willow just seems to be standing there like, oh, that wacky Xander. Yeah. Willow's looking very much like Marianne Spear in this episode. I don't get that reference. What's a Marianne Spear? So if you're a Dylan and don't know who Marianne Spear is, this is a reference to The Babysitter's Club, which was a book series in the 80s. And I think a little bit into the 90s. It went on for a really long time. In the early books, Marianne is dressed by her conservative father. So it's a lot of jumpers and cardigans. And so seeing Willow in this outfit, I just immediately thought of Marianne. Ah, okay. And I know like Willow's outfits are never designer, but this is a little bit more demure. And I don't know if that's the right word. Then we see her even later with like the bright overalls and the bright colored sweaters. This is just very, very conservative. Yep. So like with the establishing shot of the school, I think we should see exactly how Xander and Willow are first introduced in the script. Uh, For Xander, it says he is bright, funny, and will one day be suave and handsome. Till that day arrives, he'll do the best he can with bright and funny. For Willow, she is shy, bookish, and very possibly dressed by her mother. (laughs) The intelligence in her eyes and the sweetness of her smile belie a genuine charm that is lost on the unsettled high school mind. I just love Willow so much. I think those are perfect descriptions. Yes. Xander tells Willow she is just the person he was hoping to see as he needs help with the math homework. The two agree to a study date as it's clear here how besotted Willow is with Xander. And Willow tells Xander he should check out a math theory book from the library. Question. Has any high schooler who is not Willow ever actually checked out a math theory book from the library? I didn't even know that libraries had math theory books. So that would be a no. I was very much... In the fiction section of the library in high school and never left that area. Oh, weren't we all? They head inside and they're joined by Jesse. I'm going to make a point to pile on as much Jesse appreciation as possible because one, we lose him way too soon. And two, Jesse's in my Merrick corner (laughs) of things that should have made a bigger impact than it did. We're going to talk about especially the whole Jesse thing as we go on this episode. But I know why they did what they did with Jesse, basically to show no one is safe in this town. But like Merrick, I feel what happens to Jesse should have a bigger impact on certain characters than it clearly does. (laughs) Like you mean the people who are quite obviously very close with him? Yes. And we're going to talk about that a lot. (laughs) Jesse's initial description is... 
he's a little more awkward than Xander, a little less likely to become a lady killer in his later years. No. And so Jesse brings to them the knowledge that there's a new girl. But unfortunately, that's all he knows. New girl. From this oh-so-revealing conversation, we go to said new girl as she's meeting with the principal. I love Principal Flutie. He Mm. tried. He really tried. He did. Didn't always get it right, like with the transcript, but he tried. I mean, you think he would have at least waited till she walked out of the office to tape it back together. No. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Fun thing to note, this is the scene when the creator knew that he had a star in Sarah Michelle Gellar. Aww. They talk about Buffy, her past at Henry. He welcomes her to Sunnydale. And and like we said, he's trying, but he can't stop fixating on the fact Buffy burned down the gym at her old school. However, in Buffy's defense, the gym was filled with asbestos. And that's the only way you can get rid of asbestos burn that motherfucker to the ground that's right so in one of the times i was watching this episode i realized that principal flutie really really reminds me of jeff schwartz from the goldbergs i need to watch that show you do it's a great show it's on my list well ken Lerner, who plays principal flutie plays jeff's dad on the goldbergs apparently whoever casted the well adam goldberg also was like hey these two people seem very similar let's get him in there Buffy comes out of the office she bumps into another student and the contents of her bag scatter across the floor giving Xander the perfect opportunity to introduce himself he helps her pick up what was dropped so let's play what's in Buffy's bag from what I could tell from my pause screen and or the various screen caps I looked at we have the wooden stake a wallet a pack of bubblicious gum, which Xander hands back to her, a book, a small binder type thing, which I'm going to assume is a planner, yes. at least two pencils, a Walkman, which Xander also hands back to her, what looks like a makeup bag, her lunch, and then a few small items that are harder to identify. All in all, aside from the steak, it's pretty much believable as the bag of a teenage girl. What, you didn't walk around carrying steaks throughout high school? I didn't. But if anyone sees anything I missed, let me know. So when Xander bends over, it becomes really clear he's he's wearing a necklace in this scene. And this is one of those things that drove me crazy because I have looked through screen caps and photo shoots and everything trying to enlarge a picture enough to see what it is. And I'm pretty sure it's a metal, but mm. I can't see clearly enough to see what it is. So if anyone knows, if anyone has any educated guesses, write us, let us know. Um, this is also something I'll be tracking. Like, when does he stop wearing it? Is this a first season thing? Is it just a this episode thing? I fixate on these things okay i feel like it was probably just something that he had like because you know they had them bring a lot of shit from their own wardrobes oh i'm sure they did buffy heads off to class xander watches her go realizing a second too late that she forgot her steak and we're just gonna take a moment here to talk about friendship because obviously that is a big theme in the first season it's a big theme in all the seasons really with the scooby gang and it is something that's mentioned in the commentary that this band of outcasts they're at the heart of the show and they kind of create their own little family and it's kind of the mission statement of the show um they talk about how high school is so much for almost everyone this band of we few people that nobody really understands and your friends become so terribly real to you and everyone else seems so so fake and strange and i love this i love this because it is so true yep i love my family the one i was born into anyone who knows me anyone who's seen my instagram or my facebook knows that my nephew is the absolute center of my world but i also love my friends and they are every bit as much family to me as my blood family and probably more often i'm not even gonna say sometimes i'm gonna say more often than not probably understands me better than my biological family as they are also judgmental weirdos nerd oh you're also a nerd we just established that a few minutes ago when you were paying attention in class and i was 
lesson. But speaking of class, we follow Buffy to class, history, where the teacher is apparently trying to convince us there was a fun part of the Black Plague. Was there a fun part of the Black Plague? Yes, Ring Around the Rosie. That's the fun part of the Black Plague. Okay, fair enough. There is a fun part of the Black Plague. Because other than that, I feel like there wasn't a whole lot of fun. No, not so much. So it's in this class that we first meet Cordelia. Oh, Cordy. Cordelia is a character I feel we're going to talk a lot about as we go through both Buffy and Angel because Cordelia is one of the characters that has a continual transformation. Yes. Like Buffy and Darla, she defies expectations, but especially here in the beginning, she's meant to be a connector between Buffy and the past. Cordelia, Harmony, that group of girls are very much the girl Buffy was before the vampires. Was it that originally, and oh my god, I'm totally blanking on Cordelia's Charisma Carpenter. Was Charisma Carpenter originally supposed to play Buffy, or was Sarah Michelle Gellar originally supposed to play Cordelia? Wasn't there something like that? There was, and I had it, and now that you've asked it, I'm doubting myself. But yes, there was a thing with them originally reading for the opposite roles, or originally being casted. And I think that does speak to this connection between them. Yep. That if you could interchange these two actresses in these two roles, Roles, then there is this definite connection between Buffy and Cordelia. And we do see Cordelia actually go on a similar journey to the one Buffy went on in the movie. Oh shit. Cordelia is not called to be the slayer. Her destiny lies elsewhere and we get to that when we get to Angel. But she does go through this transformation as she realizes that there are things in this world outside her bubble. Yep. I'm starting justice for C- Cordelia because I, I'm still so mad about what happened to that character. I'm all, also just what happened to the actress in general. Like we like we mentioned, we, we, went, we went over it. But like I yeah. loved Cordy. Such a great character and such a great actress. I just, it will forever make me very mad. Charisma's a fantastic actress. And I love Cordelia because I love this this journey Cordelia goes on and that's yes. why I said we're going to talk a lot about this because these early episodes like this episode I fucking hate Cordelia yes and it and it speaks to the fact that like she's presented at this as this totally horrible person in the beginning so similar to Buffy's old friends and you're just kind of like oh and she becomes this fantastic character she becomes part of the group she grows and she she learns and I'm just so excited to just talk about this transformation that she she has yep Yep. But while we're talking about Charisma, uh, Charisma was 26 when this episode aired, making her the eldest of the core four. Sarah was 19, Allison was 22, and Nicholas was 25. But you would never, ever guess that by looking at her. No, or any, well, I mean, you would guess it by looking at Sarah because she was around the age that she was supposed to be. But the, uh, like, I never would have looked at this cast and been like, ah, yes, this is like Glee, where they were casting elderly people to play children. Back to Cordelia. We get this sequence with Cordelia and it's great because she's so nice to Buffy. She shares her book. She's very helpful. She's going to show her where the library is. And then she sees Willow and snap the mean girl switch flips on and you see Buffy experiencing this behind Cordelia watching her exchange with Willow and you just see the like change come over Buffy's face when she's like oh crap I have chosen poorly (laughs) by talking to this person. Yep. And of course we'll mention Cordelia's original description. She is pretty self-assured killer outfit. Also not wrong. Not, not wrong. So part of the conversation between Cordelia and Buffy involves Cordelia giving Buffy a coolness test. 
which she has a slight advantage in being from Los Angeles. So the first thing Cordelia asks her about is vamp nail polish. Vamp nail polish was originally called Rogue Noir. It was created by Chanel in 1994 and was at one time their best-selling cosmetic. It was also the fifth best-selling nail polish in the world come the turn of the century. So obviously, since it came out in 1994, they mean 1992. 9 to 2000. It kind of makes you wonder why Cordelia would ever say it was over. And is this a Kimberly situation all over again? Is she wanting to be the only person wearing vamp nail polish? Of course, at her most biting, Cordelia could never be anywhere as awful as Kimberly. Kimberly is a whole other level. Yes. Also, the vamp nail polish is delightful. It's still a thing. Oh yeah, no, it's gorgeous. I This like literally reminded me I needed to get another bottle of it. If I knew how to paint my nails, I would wear vamp, but I can't paint my nails. I've tried and it does not work. That's why you have the boyfriend do it for you. I don't know if I necessarily trust him to paint my nails. Oh, damn. He's like a bull in a china shop. <laughs> so along with the vamp nail polish, the coolness test mentions James Spader, Frappuccinos, and John Tesh. James Spader obviously refers to the actor who around this time was doing some pretty crazy movies. Crash, Driftwood, Two Days in the Valley. It's also interesting or notable, I guess, that James Spader will go on to be the voice of Ultron in Age of Ultron, which is, of course, directed by the creator of Buffy. Frappuccinos, self-explanatory. And John Tesh refers to the composer, musician, radio host, sportscaster. This man apparently has done it all. Though why he is the devil, I have no idea. Adding on to this, when Cordelia tells Willow she's glad the girl has seen the softer side of Sears, she's obviously referring to their ad campaign of the 90s, highlighting the women's wear and showing that Sears is not all tools and appliances. I'm making sure to mention these 90s pop culture trivia things because you are an interesting it's not my fault that I am a youthful beauty. Still, I don't know if you'll understand them. So I'm going to try to note some of them for you. It is appreciated. It's also in this conversation we're first introduced to the bronze, the local scene, and really the only place worth going in Sunnydale. It's apparently located in the bad part of town, which we're told is half a block from the good side of town. There's not a whole lot of town in Sunnydale. Cordelia drops Buffy off the library and oh, the library. I would have loved this thing. Right? I coveted this library all through high school. Our library, not nearly as cool. Nope. And once I got to college, parts of my college library looked like this. And now I'm starting to wonder if the Sunnydale library is the reason I chose that library as my hiding spot like the first year of college. But oh, I wanted our library to look like this so badly. My high school library was right out of the 50s, including all the mold ever. Ew. I know it's a running joke in the series that no one ever really comes into the library. And when they do, the gang is utterly mystified by it. It makes me so happy. But as Buffy enters, there's a sign with the library's hours that also show both the chess club and the yearbook committee apparently meet in the library. So did they just get kicked out once Buffy yes. showed up? <laughs> Giles was full on like, no, no, get the fuck out. Who are you again? As long as Giles kicked them out. I was like, maybe they got eaten by vampires. But no, Giles just told them to go find someplace else. Giles just straight up told them they were not worthy of the library. Speaking of Giles, this is where we meet Giles. Yay! And Giles is just, he's another one of those characters I have all the thoughts and feelings about because it's Giles. Goddamn Anthony Stewart head. I love him so much. I love him so much. And I just, I wish I could remember the theme song Jackie and I wrote for the Giles show. It was great. But Giles is there. Buffy tells him she's new. She's looking for a book and... When he confirms the girl in front of him is Buffy, he gets so excited. He's just like, yes, this is it. It is time to start 
watching. <laughs> and he takes the vampire book and he like slams it down. And this book does not look like a real book at all. Like this is so clearly a prop book. But he's like excited. He's gleeful. And then Buffy shoots him down. And he's just like, oh. That was his time to shine. And she ruined it. She did. She stepped on those toes. And just so rude of Buffy. So rude. Very rude. A little wigged by this all, Buffy flees the library. We go to the girls' locker room. And there is an extreme dead guy in the locker. Dead guy extreme! You're welcome. But before we get there, I just need to talk about the locker scene. Because the dialogue here is kind of painful. And it's way overdone. Like, they're talking and they're like, the chatter in the calf. What? Neg. Neg Lee. And I feel like even for a show that gave us stuff like having a Wiggins, this just really seems out of place. Well, it also depends on who is delivering the lines. Like Sarah Michelle Geller, th- there was just a way that she delivered all of those lines that it worked. It felt like something that she would actually say. It did. And I know that this is a pilot and a lot of the pilot is establishing and so much of this is meant to establish the like bright, bubbly, poppy, Southern California culture juxtaposed with Hellmouth. Yes. I also love that a girl who's named Aphrodisia thinks Buffy has a weird name. We head out to the courtyard while I was eating lunch. I just noticed now she has a pin of a bowling pin. So it's a bowling pin pin. So cute. Uh, Noticeable on her jumper. Buffy comes along. Willow immediately offers to leave because Buffy was hanging out with Cordelia and Willow assumes that means Buffy doesn't want to be around her. But Buffy tells her, no, no, it's okay. She actually came to see Willow and she had a favor to ask her. Obvious, it's just an excuse to talk to Willow. But she asks Willow if Willow can help her get caught up. And so... During this conversation, Willow drops the knowledge that Giles is also new to Sunnydale, having been the curator for the British Museum, or a British Museum, and kind of get from the look on Buffy's face that she's she's starting to put two and two together. Xander and Jesse join the party, and I just need to say, 14-year-old Mary found Xander very adorable. Eight-year-old Dylan also found Xander adorable. I was right there with Willow crushing on him. Um, I apparently have two types when it comes to guys. They are either adorable boys like Xander or Leonard from Big Bang Theory, or they're sociopathic serial killers like JD and Billy Loomis. I think that explains a lot about my attraction to Spike as he fits both categories. I can't. You're not wrong, but I can't. This is what I'm talking about. We're going to go back to talking about Jesse for a moment. And why is he never mentioned after this set of episodes? It's obvious from the interaction between him, Xander, and Willow that the three of them have been friends for a really long time. And then he just dies or becomes a vampire, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But I feel very much, other than the shock factor of Jesse dying, I feel like Jesse and Xander are kind of supposed to mirror Pike and Benny. Oh, 100%. Like Xander and Willow just find out vampire vampires are real one of their friends is turned into a vampire dies and never mentions it again this is right up there with merit these are things i think should have affected these 15 16 year old children more than they obviously did kids are resilient all right fair enough also i'm now 90 percent not well not 90 percent. i'm like 80 percent sure it's a saint christopher's medal but i'm still gonna see if i can find out for sure cordelia arrives bringing news of the extreme dead guy from earlier and letting buffy know that gym class is canceled jesse takes this opportunity to try and flirt with her while she and xander engage in what will soon become their iconic banter leading cordelia to ask don't you have an elsewhere to be i say this at least twice a week <laughs> 
Thank you, Cordelia and the writers of Buffy for injecting that phrase into my vocabulary. Uh, Though I will say a lot of the times I kind of change it to find an elsewhere to be. But wow, rewatching the show, I realize how much of my vocabulary comes from this show. The first time I met one of my girlfriend's high school friends when I was out in California, literally one of her first comments to me was, you talk like a Buffy character. (laughs) (laughs) But again, this was on when we were 14, 15, 16 years old. This was very much a crucial point in our life. And and we clearly took a lot of things from it, including the linguistics. You got Buffy. I have catchphrases from the Grinch and the land before time that I can't get rid of. Now we're going to be able to look for these things we say. (laughs) (laughs) Intrigued and more than a little wigged by news of the dead guy because, oh no, not again. Buffy heads to the locker room to investigate. She confirms Chris was indeed killed by one of the pointy bitey ones. Mm. And she goes back to the library. And I have a hard time deciding whether I love or hate the conversation between Buffy and Giles in the library. Oh. On one hand, it is a great scene that showcases Buffy's want to be normal and cinematically works so well when bookcased with the scene at the end of the season in Prophecy Girl. Yes. But at the same time, it is so similar to Buffy's conversation with Merrick in the movie. And the whole, all I want to do is graduate from high school. We've seen Buffy do this and we've seen her come out the other side. Well, let's be real. No one has really seen Buffy do this. You even said you did not see the movie until after you watched the show. (laughs) And that's the thing. And I know that a lot of what we see, especially in this episode and The Harvest, is world building for the viewing audience. Characters are asking questions that realistically they probably won't ask. And I will point that out a couple of times. But it's all for us, the viewing audience. Yep. And oh, like I said, uh, this is probably why they have Giles ask Buffy about whether or not Chris will rise again. Clearly as a watcher, Giles knows how a vampire is made. But the rules of this universe are being defined for the audience. And so we take this opportunity for Buffy to inform us that to be made a vampire, they have to suck your blood and you have to suck theirs. It's a whole big sucking thing. Most of the time, they're going to just kill you. So I did mistakenly in the movie episode say they have to be buried. And I took that, I think, because Spike, when Buffy has dug her way out of the grave, Spike mentions that he knows what those marks on her hand is. He had to dig himself out. And I was like, well, why would he have been like, why didn't Drusella just take him back to the lair? Like, why would he have been buried? Yeah. Unless it's something you have to do. But we will throughout the show see vampires rise like in the Morgan stuff. So I think there's just like a two or three day period. You don't necessarily have to be put into the ground. There's a waiting period. It's like the DMV, but for becoming a vampire. Though there's not a waiting period in this episode as we'll get to. Well, as we'll get to in the next episode. But we're talking like a 12 hour period. Anyway, Giles is talking to Buffy and piling all this stuff on about demons and vampires, incubi, succubi. Buffy asks him if he's sent away for the Time Life series. For anyone who doesn't know, I think most people know, but for anyone who doesn't know, the Time Life series were a series of books that readers had mailed to their house in monthly installments. Uh, there was a 33 volume series called Mysteries of the Unknown. So who knows? Giles could have actually subscribed. It's here we first hear about the Hellmouth as Giles asks Buffy, like, does she know what's going on with this town? And the idea of the Hellmouth was created because you needed a reason that these baddies just kept showing up in this show. Yeah. It was just their magical excuse. They never thought it would be questioned. And surprise, the network loved it. To the point that they think the Hellmouth is what sold the show. And it's not a bad thing to have because anytime anything happens, you just point and go, Hellmouth. 
Hellmouth. Uh, we do know from the encyclopedia there are two other known Hellmouths in the Buffyverse. Cleveland and Easter Island. See, I'm not out of line for just thinking about America in this show because a lot of fucking shit happens in America, ma'am. Easter Island isn't in America. I'm talking Cleveland, you twit. Fucking Easter Island is in America. I know where Easter Island is. Well, I don't. I just know it's not here. Buffy asks if he got the toaster along with the Time Life subscription. And he says, no, he got the calendar. Giles will indeed get the calendar as uh, we will be introduced later in the season to Jenny Calendar, Giles's love interest. Jenny. We're going to talk a lot about Jenny once Jenny shows up. I'm going to go back to my Merrick rant. I'm sorry, guys. It's going to come up a few times, especially in first season. But Buffy and Giles start talking about her slaying. And he says that as a watcher, his job is to train and prepare her. Which, again, Buffy clearly knows, but the casual viewing audience will not. She responds with, prepare me for what? Getting kicked out of school? Losing all my friends? For having to spend all my time fighting for my life and never being able to tell anyone because I might endanger them? This would be the perfect time to mention Merrick. For Buffy to point out that even Giles is in danger. To, in her bitterness, and is it bitterness? It may just be tiredness. To say something about the last guy who had his job. Because you know underneath it all, Merrick is one of the people Buffy's talking about. Her mom is fine. Her dad, though back in LA, is fine. We can assume Pike is fine. But Merrick is gone, and I have no doubt she still feels responsible for that. You are not wrong. Like, I I would assume that she would feel responsible for that. But it's also like, this is a strange man that she just met. There is a difference between saying, I'm worried about losing my friends versus I am also dealing with having lost someone that is very important to me. Exactly. And that's kind of why I'm surprised there wasn't a line that was a little bit more sarcastic and off-putting kind of like, well, didn't you hear about the last guy who had your job? (laughs) Yeah. Something like that to acknowledge it's something she's still dealing with, but keep that wall up between her and Giles at this point. So the mention of Buffy getting kicked out of school and stuff also made me think about it. Why doesn't the Watchers Council arrange for like cover stories? This is a centuries, millennial old organization. They've been here since the primeval days, at least the shadow men who created the first Slayer were. And they send a watcher to a Slayer, but why don't they have people placed in stuff like city councils, school boards, fire departments to cover up shit like this and let the Slayer do her job? I know the answer is they are old white men and don't care. Exactly. I believe Panda's response was they are old British white men and this is the colonies. (laughs) And I know, I know it's that. I know and we see it throughout the series. We will very much see it when we get to seasons three and season five that the council kind of views the Slayer as their property. Yes. But you just think that they'd be on covering up all this shady shit. I'm sure that they cover up that shady shit if it's happening, if the Slayer's in the UK. They're like, well, fuck. They're homegrown Slayers. Yep. I mean, it's just these problem children in America we don't care about. Every other country, they have cover-ups. America, they're like, fuck them. That's what they get for throwing out our tea. Following their little confrontation, Buffy storms out and Giles follows, leaving us to see that Xander has overheard the whole conversation. And I think Xander deserves a little shout out here, because if you look in his hand when he emerges from the stack, he is carrying the book Willow recommended he take a look at. He really is trying. Oh, this is why I love Xander so much. Even though he is a brat sometimes because he was a fucking 15-year-old boy. I mean, teenage boys, like teenage girls, are the worst. But right now, 
Xander, Xander gets a good point. Okay, so remember how I told you about loving a good transition? We're going to see yes. a lot of them in this episode's beginning here. Because the scene with Buffy and Giles in the hallway ends with this perfect verbal transition. Because Buffy asks, how bad an evil can there be here? And, well, we're going to show you. Because, surprise, it's the master. Voila! Unlike Lothos's ambiguous layer, this one is definitely a ruined church or more accurately a church destroyed and buried by an earthquake we see the followers of the master milling about while someone chants the sleeper will wake the sleeper will wake the sleeper will wake dude we get it the sleeper's gonna wake but is the sleeper gonna wake the sleeper's gonna wake i i'm i'm not sure about it i think i need them to tell me another 20 times oh don't worry he will the vampire chanting is luke who's played by brian thompson brian thompson was eddie on kindred the embraced another vampire show also delightfully 90s-tastic, though more primetime soap opera-y and done for Fox, based on White Wolf's Vampire the Masquerade. Oh, I was gonna ask if it was... Yes. Okay, because the, the name very much made me think of Vampire the Masquerade. Carry on. Brian Thompson will also go on to play a completely unrelated character in The Judge in Season 2. I am gonna take a moment to say I, as a small goth child, definitely played Vampire the Masquerade. This is my shocked face. You have so much shocked face. I was Clan Giovanni. Um, if anyone out there listening played, drop your clans to us because I just want to know how many other kindred are still out there. And since Luke is an integral part of these episodes, uh, or at least these first two episodes, we'll take a look at how the script introduces him. He is large, powerful, appears to be in his late 20s. In fact, Luke is much older than that. His dress speaks of many eras, but definitively of none. Isn't he just wearing like a black t-shirt and some puka shells? Like, I think the wardrobe department kind of, kind of dropped the ball there, but still Luke is big, imposing. He's a bad dude. Yes. We need to just talk about the vampires. We're going to talk about the vampires a bit through these two episodes because I have so many questions, especially the fact that they say amen. Okay. Hmm. I grew up Catholic. I very much associate amen with being the end of a prayer. Yes. It's so weird to hear vampires saying this word that 90% of people listening are going to strongly associate with Catholicism when the icons of Catholicism are what repel them. That is fair. I, I will give you that. So these vampires, the ones that follow the master, are known as the Order of Aurelius. Though the order was not founded by the master, he took control sometime in the 18th century. Wow, rude. Make your own order. Come on, dude. He's the master. Apparently not master enough to make his own goddamn order. He's got to go around stealing other people's orders. We leave the lair and we rejoin Buffy now in her room getting ready to go out to the bronze. And she tries on this like black pleather dress. She tries on this floral monstro. Why is this even in her closet? <laughs> because it's the 90s. But it doesn't seem like anything Buffy would ever wear. Maybe she stole it from her mom or got accidentally put into her clothes when they unpacked from the move. Maybe. Maybe it's not actually hers. But when she has it in front of the mirror, she does mention the Watchtower. The Watchtower is an illustrated religious magazine and is the primary means of disseminating the Jehovah's Witnesses' beliefs. So she's saying that outfit kind of has that <laughs> like... I'm gonna go knock on your door. Yeah. Joyce comes in and just her hair in this scene is just so 90s mom hair. And she mentions that she's been reading parenting books and therefore knows the dangers of over-nurturing. I love Joyce through these first two episodes where she she stays a good parent and she stays an involved parent through everything, but especially these first two episodes where she mentions like the books and the tapes yep. and she's just, she's trying, she's trying. I find Joyce's comment about Buffy being a good girl who fell in with the wrong crowd interesting and it makes me wonder what Joyce thinks happened back in LA. Is she referring to Pike? 
I feel like she's probably referring to Pike. And it is possible. I mean, Buffy did run off to Las Vegas with him. Which is more aggressive now that, like, she's been redacted into, that's not the right word, retconned into being a freshman when all of that happened. So it's like, dear small child, why did you run away to Vegas? And how old was Pike? Did Pike get retconned? I'll have to look at the origin comic and see if they also de-aged Pike. Um, Or if Buffy, I mean, but, but he also could have been 19. He could have been like a year out of school. Still creepy for a 15 year old to be running to Vegas with a 19 year old. Oh yeah, definitely. But at least we know that they were literally just fighting vampires. I am aware, but her mom would not have any way of knowing that that was what she was doing. True. So I don't know if she thought it was Pike. I don't know if she thought Buffy had fallen in with the goth rave crowd that was the vampires. (laughs) Yep. But it just, it does make me just wonder what Joyce thinks happened. And again, shows that Joyce is very different than movie Joyce because I'm really not sure movie Joyce or whatever her name was supposed to be there would have even noticed that her daughter burned down a gym. (laughs) No, no, she would not have. She would be too focused on her two microwaves. So Buffy leaves the house in none of the outfits she tried on and heads to the bronze, walking alone as one does along the dark and shadowy streets of Sunnydale. Uh, Walking along, we see Buffy's being followed, something she herself is also very aware of. But that's okay, because as he steps into the light, we see that her creepy stalker is in fact Angel. Angel could stalk me any day, I'm just saying. Okay, so Angel in these early episodes, he bothers me even more than he normally bothers me. And I have it in my notes to talk more about that later. Yeah. There's something about him that seems very off. Well, yeah, he's a vampire with a soul. He doesn't know how to fucking exist. It's not that. I think I get into it more in The Harvest, but we'll see. It's not the whole vampire with a soul thing. It's like the characterization of Angel himself seems off. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Buffy knocks him to the ground wanting to know why he was following her and he assures her that he doesn't bite. Liar. Fun fact, this was David Boreanaz's audition scene, the conversation where he tells Buffy about the harvest as they're standing here in the streets and he's warning her of what's to come. Hmm. But he just, he comes off as an asshole in these early scenes. Well, yeah. I will say that I do enjoy the smirk, but that's probably because like that's pretty jealous smirk. Well, yeah. But I don't know. It's just weird. But like I said, we'll we'll talk about it. Uh, We did it with all the other main characters except Giles because Giles didn't really get a description. Rude. Rude. And Buffy didn't get one either. Interesting. We'll look at Angel's introduction. He is strikingly handsome with intelligence and a kind of distance in his eyes. Moves with a fighter's grace. So assuring Buffy that he is a friend, though not necessarily her friend, he gives her a cross and disappears back into the shadows. Buffy heads to the bronze and paying the cover charge steps inside. So uh, the exterior of the bronze is actually the warehouse that acted as their soundstage. So this is just literally the WB lot we're seeing right here as Buffy walks up to the bronze. That makes me happy. So the bronze is another thing that I look back on and I'm like, was this a thing? Like going to a pseudo nightclub in the middle of the week? I remember my sister would used to go to this place called Mecca, but it was it was a skating rink. But it was very much like it was what all the the, the teens would do. Yeah, we just hung out at people's houses or borders. We were boring. Yeah, I, I was not a cool teen. My my friends and I, we just walked around 
our town at night. Although we did hang out in the many multiple graveyards that my town has at various times of night. So maybe we were, no, we were just spooky. Never mind. We weren't cool. Okay. So some towns did have these places where teens gathered, but I'm just trying to like think of like 16 year old Mary being like, well, it's Wednesday night. I'm going to a nightclub. And my mother being like, ha, 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 no. <laughs> like, farewell, mama. I'm off to the nightclub. It just, it, I don't know. It struck me as weird they all go on weeknights, but. Well, it also struck me as weird that they went to a fucking nightclub. They're children. I don't, I don't know what the bronze is exactly. Like sometimes it seems like a nightclub. Sometimes it seems like a coffee shop. Yes. There's pool tables. I don't know. I guess it's... it was just like literally a hangout. <laughs> yeah. It, it's still fucking weird. Uh, looking around, Buffy tries to spot someone, anyone she recognizes, or that might possibly recognize her. And oh, there's that slightly embarrassing moment uh, when she thinks someone is waving at her and she like waves back and then realizes and she's like, oh, but it's okay because she's going to head over to the bar or the coffee. Ca- I'm not really sure what it is. And she's going to find Willow, who is still doing her best baby club cosplay willow's alone but she came hoping that xander might decide to show and when buffy asks if they're an item willow says they were but then xander stole her barbie (laughs) they were five oh so i've noticed that a lot of like first relationships on tv shows end in theft xander stole willow's barbie and on Live in Maddie, which is on the Disney show, Holden stole her special pink pen. Rude. Is there like a kindergarten black market where people are selling these items? Because I'm beginning to think there is. I mean, I would not be shocked. Willow and Buffy continue to talk about boys and dating. And Buffy urges Willow to seize the moment because life is short. And I can buy this as the philosophy of a slayer. Yes. Seize the moment because tomorrow you might be dead. It makes a lot of sense for someone not expected to live past 21. Very much so. Buffy spots Giles above. And this is rare, actually. I don't think there's a whole lot of times. I think it's more prevalent in later seasons than the early ones. Yeah. The Giles actually goes to the bronze. I can remember him being there. But yeah, no, you're right. I don't remember it being something that happened frequently for him. No. So this is a very rare appearance at the bronze by Giles. Buffy assures Willow she'll be right back and goes to see what brought him there. The scene that will follow between Buffy and Giles was Anthony Stewart Head's audition. Oh. So when they're talking, Giles says he would rather be home with a cup of Bovril and a good book. So I looked up Bovril and it's a salty meat extract paste that you can mix with hot water to make a drink out of. No. I remember asking Hallie if this is actually a thing. Like, I think when I was making notes on this the first time, I added Hallie to be like, hold on, do people actually drink this? And apparently they do. It is a big part of football, not American, culture, and people drink it in stadiums a lot out of thermoses. So I wonder now if we can take this to mean that Giles is a football fan. Probably. Oh, it's like, it's a bone broth. Okay. Or, or similar to bone broth. Like, I, I, I just Googled it because I had to see what this monstrosity is. But then the next thing that comes up for it is public goods chicken bone broth. So I'm, I'm assuming they're, it's, it's similar to a bone broth, which okay. I also find upsetting. Giles tells Buffy he came to the bronze for two reasons. One, it is a breeding ground for vampire activity. And two, he was hoping to run into her and make her see sense. She tells him that she already knows about the harvest that his buddy told her. But Giles doesn't know Angel and has no idea what she's talking about. Though now he wants to find out. Giles tells Buffy that everyone below has no idea of the danger they're in. And for a moment, we see Buffy envy them. Wishing she could go back in a time when she didn't know. I appreciate this moment because this moment 
does show that everything has affected her. Yes. So we go below for a brief moment and we see Cordelia and the others. And Jessie goes to ask her for a dance and she responds with you. And we know from interviews, <laughs> this moment was taken directly from the creator's own high school experience. Oh. Only where Jessie answers Cordelia, he just ran away saying nothing. Back above, we get actual confirmation that the PMS cramps are a thing of the past. Mm, Bye-bye. As Giles tells Buffy, a vampire is undetectable until they are ready to feed and that she must be ready, alert. Interesting enough, though, Giles also makes it seem like there's another way for a slayer to detect vampires because he tells Buffy to, like, reach out with her mind, hone her senses, and his instruction, yeah, reach out with the force. Slayers (laughs) apparently have the force. May the force be with you and also with you. God, I say that so often. God damn being raised Catholic. Yep. His instructions seem to imply that if trained properly or in a certain manner, a slayer can almost detect the energy a vampire gives off. Hmm. Interesting. But as far as I know, that's also never mentioned again. (laughs) Well, yes, we do absolutely nothing with it. But Buffy's Buffy, and she has another way of identifying the vampires hanging out in the bronze. And that's by his carbon-dated outfit. So Buffy identifies the vampire based on their clothing. But this doesn't always work, because obviously some vampires do adapt new styles. Darla does. So why did this vampire just decide that, like polyester was his best option forever because he really likes polyester okay this is like the opposite of the movie like in the movie none of the vampires decided to stick with their original outfits and all decided to go like the goth rave route here vampires are like nah it was good nothing will top my bell bottoms look it's like how millennials are refusing to get rid of their side parts and their skinny jeans this is the first of many times that we will see willow put into danger as Willow is the girl the vampire is talking to. It's a realization that has Buffy headed back down to the main floor to search them out. Poor Willow. And poor Buffy, because who should she almost stake in her attempt to locate Willow and the vampire? Cordelia, who gives us the classic, classic line of, what is your childhood trauma? That is up there for me with, a oh, fuck, of course, now I forget it. Is, it. is it fuck me gently with a chainsaw? Fuck me gently with a chainsaw. Those two are are up there for me. They're good lines and they go together really well, actually. Yep. <laughs> okay, so the thing I got fixed, I get fixated on background things, guys. Just go with me here. The thing I got fixated on in this scene is there's a crossword puzzle stuck up on the wall behind Cordelia. Like, is someone proud of finishing it? Is it a communal thing? And also with the way there's like another picture cut out and almost photocopied on top of it, it looks like it came out of a zine. Does anyone else remember zines? Those drunk ass teenagers were very proud of themselves for finishing this zine crossword puzzle, all right? Okay, so it's definitely an achievement thing. Yeah. We see Cordelia has a cell phone, not something we see a whole lot of in these early seasons. But there she is pulling out out of her purse to call everyone she has ever met. And it's it's very similar to the Zach Morris phone because it's still got the antenna. And I just, I love it. I love it. We're going to see a lot of 90s technology here. I will probably have to explain to you, small child, how we all had to wait for our modems back in the day. Bitch, I have been on the internet since 19 motherfucking 95. I remember AOL (laughs) and not being able to use the phone if someone was on the internet. So there. Running back into Giles, Buffy tells him that she lost them. But it's okay. She'll handle it. And we get another great verbal transition. Buffy tells Giles that she can handle one vampire. Only for us to see that it's not just one vampire. Dun dun dun. Because Jesse is talking to Darla. Hi Darla. I love Darla. 
I love Darla so much. And she's just so perfectly coy because he's like, do you live here? And she's like, my family does. <laughs> and I know she comes back later. I know that we see her in flashbacks and we see her on Angel. But I really wish they had let Darla stick around longer than they do. Yes, I think that would have been great. And I just, I really love her actress. I think she is a delight to watch. I love Julie Benz. Darla mentions her family and we join them back underground in the master's lair. And there's Luke still waiting for the sleeper to wake, which he does. Yay. I mean, I guess for the vampires. Yeah, not so much yay for the humans. So apparently the master was originally supposed to like rise from this pool of blood and be covered with blood for the entirety of the rest of the episode. And by that, I guess they do this and the harvest. But yeah, they just apparently that was messy and horrible for the actor. Yeah. Well, he already had prosthetics and stuff on. Oh, I just can't imagine how. Ugh, no thanks. It's never spoken out loud in these episodes. I don't know if it's ever spoken out loud at all. But from the script, we do learn that the master's name is Heinrich Joseph Nest. And he was born about some 600 years ago. Hmm. So going back to our discussion of Vampire Kings versus Vampire Masters, the Buffy wiki tells us that Lothos is from the 11th or 12th century, which means Lothos is 200 to 300 years older than the Master. So I think the Master just never was able to reach the level of Vampire King and decided, fuck it, I'm going to name myself the Master. So he just created his own title. Yes, I like it. Luke, clearly for the audience, explains a bit more about the harvest. And we learn that the harvest is supposed to help free the master because right now he's unable to leave his lair. There's like this mystical force field thing there and it will make him strong. So it's kind of like the vamp version of eating your veggies. So did we ever find out how long the master had been trapped in his lair and how his lair ended up being in fucking California? We do. We will actually get to that, I believe, in the next episode. We talk about it during the harvest. Oh, shit. I pay attention. No, no, no. You're fine. Well, I mean, we're going to talk about it next week. We will talk about how the master got under there, how long he's been under there. And let me tell you, for the amount of time he's been under there, he's been way over dramatic. <laughs> Good. We also learn here that the master apparently likes his food young. Ew. Ew. At least he's not eating kittens. Yes, I will take that, but still gross. Why can't they just eat like fucking... <laughs> old people <laughs> sure yes go eat the old people we're gonna sacrifice grandma yes granny's lived long enough all right kids if you're being attacked by vampires just push your grandmother in front of them yep she'll be happy to because she's lived a long fulfilling life willow and her new friend are supposedly headed to the ice cream bar a place he says he knows a shortcut to do not trust fetchy guys who say they know a shortcut, especially when said shortcut is through a graveyard. Actually, we're just going to make that a general life lesson. Do not trust sketchy people who want to take you on shortcuts through cemeteries. But what if I'm the sketchy person who wants to take you on a shortcut through the cemetery? I never trust you. Rude. Back at the bronze, Xander has arrived. He's on the scene and he is quite proud of Willow for scoring a date. Like, he is. He's yes. like, all right, Willow, bronze action. Buffy, not so excited for Willow. And when she keeps insisting that they need to find Willow, Xander's like, yeah, because we don't want the vampires to get her. <laughs> it's a pretty solid Xander scene. And again, he gets credit because when he realizes Buffy's not joking and Willow's in, actually in danger, he's all in. Yep. 
And Willow is in a lot of danger. Our vampire is leading her deeper and deeper into the cemetery toward the mausoleum, which kudos for Willow for realizing she does not want to go into that mausoleum. Well, but also what, like, I'm sorry. I know obviously his plan was not to actually get her to the ice cream bar, but if he's telling her this is a shortcut, he's like, ah, yes, the shortcut to the ice cream bars through this mausoleum. Like what? No good, sir. That's not how that works. So the way it's presented in the in the scene is they're like walking through the graveyard and then he's like, hey, you ever been inside one of these? Kind of like, hey, we're here. It's creepy. Let's go. It's something you would do. Yes, but I wouldn't say that it was a shortcut to an ice cream bar. Okay, that's fair. You would not have promised me ice cream. You would have just promised me danger. Exactly. But yes, kudos for Willow. Doesn't want to go in there. Doesn't want to let Creeper Disco Vampire nibble on her neck. She tries to get the hell out, but the way is being blocked by Darla, who's dragged along poor Jesse, and this is the beginning of the end for him. But it's so good to see, even here, in this first episode, Willow standing up in the face of extreme danger. She has no idea what's going on. But she knows it's bad and she knows Jesse's hurt and she can take enough charge to try to get them out of there. And just she was just always so much stronger than she knew. I love Willow. She she has always been and always will be my favorite character on this show. I am so super shocked that the witch (laughs) is your favorite. It's my turn to have a shocked face. Surprise. Darla vamps out just as Buffy and Xander arrive. Buffy making a few remarks about how cozy the crypt is and it's kind of funny because we will see crypts such as this one take (laughs) on a homier appearance in the later seasons as spike takes up residence in one and i know this is probably the result of having not decided some things yet about backstories and such but i find it really weird that darla doesn't know what buffy is Darla's been around long enough to see Slate, but Darla was with them in China when Spike killed one. There are still other people who aren't Slayers that know about the things that go bump in the night in this universe. So it's fair, like Buffy to her hasn't shown anything that would make her think she's a Slayer. Yes and no, because this does continue, and we'll we'll talk about this in the next episode, because this does continue when they get downstairs and Darla's like, oh, there was this girl. She was strong. And then the Master and Luke are like aha it must be a slayer <laughs> so like okay. darla knows she's stronger than she should be but darla doesn't make that connection and like i said i know i know that is a result of not yet having decided that like darla was there when they haven't decided people's backstories yet yeah but when you look at the show as a whole picture you're just kind of like come on darla get with it Speaking of Darla, I would have liked to have seen a lot more interaction between the vamps and the order. Yes. I mean, we do get some. Yeah, but not enough. Yeah, but it's not on the same level that we get like the interaction between her and Angel or even between her and Spike and Drew in the flashbacks or her and Drew once they both go to Angel. Like, yeah, that's her childer and her grandchilders. But these are her vampire siblings. Wait, they're her childer and grandchilders? Yeah, childer is what you call a person you have sired. Maybe it's just a vampire the masquerade term. Okay. But that's obviously where my brain goes. Point is, those are the vampires she sired. Yep. But it would also be interesting to see her interact with like her vampire siblings. I think that would have been a fun dynamic to play with, but but we don't really get a lot of that. And I'm kind of sad about that. Buffy stakes the disco vamp, tells the others to run, and they do because they're smart. And Buffy and Darla begin to fight. And it, it definitely looks like Buffy has the upper hand when Luke appears the rat bastard but i mean i guess getting involved in the fight is better than him just sitting around and chanting 
Um, there is a great bit of juxtaposition here with Luke going off on his rant about the harvest and the yes. blood will run and the blah, blah, blah. His words superimposed over Giles looking through his books. Giles and his books, always my faves. And Luke throws Buffy into like the actual tomb that's in this crypt. Yep. And he jumps in with her and he goes for her neck and to be continued. Dun, dun, dun. Such cliffhanger. That's welcome to the Hellmouth. Uh, any final thoughts, questions, ponderances? I just, there are a lot of shows where the pilot is not great. And it, it, you you really have to go into the other episodes to be drawn in. And I don't remember experiencing that with Buffy. I don't remember ever being like, mm, I don't think I want to go on and continue this show. I was like, no, I'm drawn in. Like, I, I'm, I'm here for this ride. Give me more. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, there are so many shows. Even now, like, there's a couple of sitcoms I know where it's not even just the pilot episode. I tell people, like, you just need to get, like, midway through season one. Like, get these episodes out of the way, and then you'll be, like, all in. But no, Buffy from this, like, first moment, I you got me. I'm good. Let's do this. It made me very happy so that's just about it for this week uh thank you all for listening and make sure to join us next time and we'll take on episode two the harvest until then you can check out our various social media channels all of which as always will be listed in the show notes and if you like the show and you want to let us know it you can subscribe rate and review or write to us directly at the watchers diaries at gmail.com bye